have run out of excuses and we are running out of time. We're looking at mass starvation within 10 years. The reality is we're sleepwalking into a catastrophe. Change is coming, whether you like it or not. Hello, this is episode two of Extinction Rebellion's podcast. I'm Jessica Townsend, and this week I'm presenting with a new presenter called Dave Anderson. Hello. (laughs) Marine is away this week. Dave is a newer member of Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion has only been going for sort of nine months, though. I'm practically Uh, a veteran now. (laughs) (laughs) How did you get involved? I got involved because I saw the actions on the bridges, uh, blocking the bridges in central London in uh, November 2018. And I thought, finally, there are some people acting like this is an emergency, acting in a way that's commensurate with the you know threat that we're all facing. Yeah. And I mean, it was exciting, actually, to see. And um, so very quickly after that, I started coming along to meetings in London and um, started helping with this podcast, uh, producing <laughs> rather than presenting, and also with some press uh, work as well uh, for the movement. When I first got involved with Extinction Rebellion, one of the great things was be able to do something active, uh, because the environmental crisis it just feel can just feel debilitating. Yeah, to have a, a clear focus and some um, some stepping stones along the way to meaningful change, rather than just this uh, directionless feeling yeah. of injustice that most of us walk around with. Yeah, I remember when the IPCC report came out last year. And it felt like, hooray, people had to act now because an organisation like the UN had said that we're in trouble and then nothing happened. But at least the things that we're doing are trying to push things forward. So in a way, it feels like an opportunity. But of course, it's against this rather terrible um, backdrop that we've got. And something that I noticed as soon as I came into the movement um, was this real focus on nonviolence. The first time you attend a meeting, it's kind of right up there from the beginning of the meeting. This is a nonviolent movement in every way, internally, externally. Uh, so I think it's a really important thing that we're doing this episode about this subject from every different angle. Got some really exciting people lined up to talk to. So I'm, I'm keen to get started. <laughs> and the first person that we're going to hear from is the co-founder of Extinction Rebellion, Roger Hallam, who is a researcher at King's College, uh, London, but also has a background as an organic farmer. And I think it's fair to say that it is his thinking around nonviolent direct action that has been a bit of a cornerstone for Extinction Rebellion. And uh, this interview was recorded before Marianne went away, so you'll hear her piping <laughs> up a few times Yes, I think. <laughs> it was recorded in the new offices uh, in London, uh, looking forward to the rebellion, which is happening in April. We are at the brand new Extinction Rebellion office in central London. Uh, we moved in yesterday, so it's all very exciting and very new. Roger, welcome to the XR podcast. Oh my God, I'm so, um, <laughs> I'm so privileged. <laughs> I'm, I'm so nervous. <laughs> So, Roger, I believe that nonviolent uh, direct action has been part of the very founding principles of Extinction Rebellion. Uh, would you talk us through why you made that decision? 
Well, the, the basic idea with nonviolence is that it's more effective and more moral than using violence, which is usually compared with, but it could also be compared with what you might call conventional campaigning, where you're not causing any disruption. So nonviolence doesn't mean, it's not a passive thing, it means you're actively going out, causing disruption, and sacrificing your liberty, as it were, in order to make a political point. And uh, it's more effective than normal campaigning because it forces the opposition, as it were, to actually respond to you because you're deliberately sort of undermining their economic interests or whatever. And it's more effective than violence because violence goes to the other extreme. It does disrupt the opposition, but it does it in such an extreme way, i.e. through violence, that the opposition tends to unite against you. And um, obviously people are usually horrified by, by the method that you're using. So in that sense, it's not really on the agenda, obviously. Um, I think there's quite a few <coughs> theorists who have studied nonviolence as being uh, an effective way forward. Uh, who were the people that influenced you? Yeah, well, the history of nonviolence is it's a sort of discovery in the 20th century, because obviously in the good old days, people either, you know, they were either passive, like peasants or whatever, or they rebelled and they used violence, obviously, through rebellion. And, you know, nine times out of ten, you know, the knights would come in and that'd be the end of the peasants, as it were. So that's like, that's, that was the n name of the game up to, you know, the late 19th century. And then the history is a guy, Tolstoy, who wrote, War and Peace, he sort of came up with the idea that it'd be more effective and moral, I guess, is to use pacifism or pacifist methods. And that inspired Gandhi, which presumably everyone knows, was involved in getting the British out of India, and that was through mass civil disobedience. And to simplify somewhat, that inspired Martin Luther King, who created the non-violent strategies of the civil rights movement in the in American 1950s and 1960s and then that's gone through to the peace movement and what have you and up to, to the present day. Roger can you talk through um, some of the research a little bit comparing you know the um, results of sort of non-violent versus violent movements? Yeah, well, the background to this was there was a guy called Gene Sharp, and he was a scholar, and he did a lot of research on a lot of the different uh, civil resistance movements and rebellions and what have you, and how the nonviolent ones worked. So he did a lot of research in the 1960s, but it wasn't particularly systematic. It was more like, you know, this worked there and that worked there, and then he basically came out with theories of it. But what's happened more recently, since 2000, has been a lot more research, sort of more vigorous research, as you might say, on why it works and how it works. So there's a book called Why Civil Resistance Works, and the sort of, you know, the big takeaway from that is they looked at 300, I think, around 300 social struggles, uh, political struggles since 1900. So that's just about all of them, as you might say. And the figures that come out of that is that the ones that were violent, 25% of them worked, they were successful, and 54% of the non-violent ones uh, worked or successful. Uh, and the, the real sort of game-changer stat, I guess, is that if you do engage in violence, you, know, you may well win, but if you do win, 95% of the societies that won, as it were, through violence, 
ended up being authoritarian or in civil war or what have you five years after the, their success in inverted commas. So, you know, that's only one in 20 that basically come out with something looking semi-decent. Actually, that brings me to my next question, which is uh, what exactly is non-violence? How would you define it? So non-violence obviously covers a whole multitude of different approaches, but the essential sort of element to it is to break the law. And what non-violence is, is the methodology of directly affecting the other side's interests. And then there's a particular reason why that works. You do something which transgresses the rules. The opposition is in a basic dilemma. The dilemma is this. Do they let you get away with it or do they repress you? If they arrest you, that's not bad for us because it produces publicity to for the cause. So this is an essential element of non-violence theory, is sacrifice isn't just some moral, fluffy sort of, you know, anti-great sort of thing. It's actually a ruthlessly effective methodology of changing society. You know, if you're sitting in the road, you're basically saying, I'm happy to be arrested. And the reason I'm happy to be arrested is because I feel so strongly about the issue. Then other people see that, and this is the primary sort of mechanism of success, people see that and they change their opinion and or they come and join you. So it's like you need to increase the cost of letting it happen, the costs of repression, to the point where the cost of negotiation is less than the cost of the other two options. So this is what's going to happen with governments around the world with climate change. The only way these people are going to actually make a structural change is through economic disruption. Because that's when they think, OK, we'll, we'll listen to the people rather than the fossil fuel companies. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what you've referred to as the love dynamic of non-violent uh, direct action and and what that kind of does and how that helps create change? Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure I call it the love dynamic. Oh, no! <laughs> it's like one extreme to another, isn't it? It's like, like Roger Himes sort of forcing people into the street, you know, evil genius or something. And then it's like love dynamic, you know, like some sort of hippie group sex therapist guru or something. Anyway, you know, whatever. Like, so just to clarify, right, when I did the King's College climate emergency, when, you know, I, I spray chalked the, the central hall with the other students who were in, and I went on hunger strike, I was suddenly like in the centre of this big sort of shitstorm, you know, of, of, you know, people going, oh my God, you know, he's done this. And, and then I was invited into a room with the vice principal. And it just dawned on me that it just seemed like a no-brainer that if you go in and be respectful towards the opposition, they're going to like you more. And if they like you more, they're more likely to agree. So this, this leads on particularly towards dealing with the police. There's a lot of confusion and criticism of XR about the police. What we do when we go and see the police, we don't go and see the police say, oh, can we have permission to block the road, right? We say, we are going to block this road, right? Whatever. And the police will respond and, you know, whatever the police do is whatever they do. But the point is, is we say to them, we're going to do this and we respect you have to do your job, right? And it's not going to do your cause any good to be going in and saying, you shit, you know, you're protecting the work, ruling class. And, and this is the big counter-criticism of all the macho sort of don't talk to the police people is if you don't talk to the police, basically what you're going to end up with is young men you're like shouting abuse at the police, right? It's all very heroic, but it's not going to bring you social change. 
you know, what you want and what the literature supports is mass participation in civil disobedience, right? And the emphasis is on mass. You need 20, 30,000 people to do this shit, right? And what does that mean is it's not just the young men. It's got to be four-year-olds and 10-year-olds and 94-year-olds. It's women. In fact, those are the demographics that basically make nonviolence work. So you can get all the young men to go and do the social media or do the crash or something. Do you see what I mean? It's like what you want is, is the grannies and the toddlers on the front line going, what are you going to do? You know what I mean? This is a community movement. In giving this interview or this podcast, I want to be really clear that I'm not pressurising anyone to do anything. Do you see what I mean? Everyone has to make their own decision. So, for instance, if I say, like, you know, sacrifice works, I'm not necessarily saying sacrifice is good or bad. So if someone, you know, wants to criticise this podcast and say, that terrible Roger Hallam, you know, he's asking people to be arrested. No, I'm not, right? I'm just saying, if you want to bring about social change, arrest, being arrested is a central part of that process. When we're doing direct action, so, for example, blocking a bridge or blocking a road, um, there are people who do get upset and um, you know we're disrupting their lives and um, what how do we respond to that how what would you say to those people the easiest analogy here is you've got you're living in a house with someone and they don't do the washing up right so you ask them nicely to do the washing up and they don't do it right probably most people listening to this have been in a situation and then you come to a point where you just go to them fucking do the fucking washing up right and they look at you and you can see for a minute or two they're sort of like going against you but they sort of know you're right right and like half an hour later they come up and they go I'm really sorry about that I know I'm shit washing up and I'm, I'm decided I'm going to do it every Thursday night and you know it's all right I'm going to get on with it now do you see what I mean so why does that happen it's because of the emotionality of the communication but when you're dealing with entrenched power and when you're dealing with entrenched social attitudes they are only ever changed through upset and pain that's just a sociological reality so I'm not saying like it's good I'm not saying hey I like upsetting people I hate upsetting people I'm sort of a nice sort of guy you know but I know from a literature point of view that this is what is necessary because it works and genuine democracy is not about everyone agreeing it's like, it's about discord, it's about argument, it's about offence, and it inevitably leads to social conflict. But social conflict is the price of democracy. Make that choice, you either live in an open society with lots of discord, or you live in a closed society where, you know, terrible things happen, but at least, you know, you can drive to work on time. You know, those are the choices. So lastly, what are your top non-violent tips for activists? How should they proceed? Dress smart and tell your parents. <laughs> Failing the ability to dress smart and tell your parents, I would say the top tips are go to a non-violent direct action training. So that's great. It's great fun because someone pretends to be a police person and they drag you across the floor, which is always quite exciting. And... Um, and then when you're in the field of battle, as it were, maintain non-violent discipline, which means don't be aggressive, don't run, don't run, and, you know, don't run at the police, don't say sarcastic or aggressive things, either to your friends or to the general public or to the police. And, and the main tip is to have fun. <laughs> because, you know, at long last, we're standing up to all this shit. <laughs>
also interesting for me to listen back to that uh, interview that you guys did with with Roger to hear him talking about all of those or all that history behind nonviolence with so much knowledge and so much depth and something something I find particularly kind of appealing about the whole idea is that it's effective it's not just a kind of moral and ethical thing which obviously is really really important as well but it's that this is actually what works you know only I think you said only one in 20 uh, violent movements achieves kind of what what it sets out to achieve whereas non-violent it's just much more effective than that. That's really interesting that you say that because there's a thinker who has influenced Extinction Rebellion quite a lot and Roger himself who is called Erica Chenoweth and she works on the east coast in the states but she happened to be in London last week and she was talking about how uh, when she first started to do research into protest movements she actually advocated violence herself. Uh, She was at a conference and somebody challenged her to do research on the effectiveness, uh, on comparing the effectiveness between violence and non-violence. And she was stunned to find out that non-violence actually was much more effective. And funnily enough, also at that lecture was Claire Farrell, who's the arts coordinator for Extinction Rebellion. And she's our next interviewee. We're here in the offices of Extinction Rebellion with Claire Farrell, who is a co-founder. How important is non-violence for Extinction Rebellion? It's probably one of the most important things in the movement. We totally lose um, social legitimacy and the sort of emotional credibility. And we've tried to embed it in many facets of, of what we've done so far. One of the things that you do is you work with the actions team and coming up to the spring rebellion I think we're expecting big growth how are the team who are organizing the actions thinking about non-violence right now well I, I work a lot obviously with the art group as well and the art group's important to actions because things get made that go out on the street, so banners and signs and, and the top line messaging and, and reducing things to, to messages that work. So some time ago, we were wondering how to communicate nonviolence in a, in a public space. And um, and I said, can't we just have placards that say nonviolent on? So we made those. And actually having that message visual um, helps to make sure that it appears in photographs and it appears in films. It makes it kind of expensive Blissit, I suppose, and and it's a constant visual reminder to the people who are taking part. When we took the bridges in November last year, 2018, on each location, there were allocated stewards. They were wearing a white sash. There were white sashes with doves of peace printed on them. So along with kind of well-being and stewarding the general public, there were trained non-violent communicators present in that space. Uh, in particular, if we're Going to block a road, for example, it's ideal to have one or two people present, depending on the size of the crowd, who are quite well trained in de-escalation tactics. So non-violence, I suppose, moves through the design of the action, which sitting on the ground is pretty non-violent, um, taking up space, and then to the messaging and to the visual, and then also has to be embedded in the way that we sort of manage ourselves in public space as well. For you, Claire, is the nonviolent idea moral or pragmatic? 
I think it's both. And I think it's an interesting question because, for example, we went to that lecture recently by Erica Chenoweth at King's College and had an opportunity to have a, a conversation with her as well. And it sounded uh, quite shocking to me that apparently some groups from the far right and neo-Nazis have been reading Gene Sharp and nonviolent theory because it seems so clear that people have gathered the data that it's effective and it becomes quite sort of one-dimensional in that it's just useful and practical advice. But I'm also quite conscious that there is something that can be lost by reducing it only to something that's mechanical. And we have a big challenge, I think, in terms of making sure that we don't lose the kind of concept of this as ethics mm. uh, as, as well as something which is practically functional. Do you think nonviolence uh, is part of our appeal to faith groups? What appeals to people within faith groups is the kind of the fact that the evidence is so overwhelmingly clear that, that this is going to destroy the lives of millions, if not billions of people around the world and, all, and, and may already be set to do that, whether we achieve anything or not, to a certain extent. And people of faith are used to looking at a sort of moral compass of their own and deciding whether it's right or not. And they have that time and space where they dedicate themselves to, to thinking about their life and what the point of it is. Do you think there's something about religious practice that means that people might put themselves forward for arrest a little more easily? Has that been your experience in exile? We've got lots of Quakers in the, in the movement and obviously they've got a radical history and they are, I don't know if you can use the term fiercely peaceful, but the, the Quaker movement has been, um, has, has given a lot of good to the world and, and good in a way which is like not very simple and not very easy, right? Because it's that old phrase that's, you know, it's, it's not that there's too much evil in the world, it's just that too many good people don't do anything about it. And that's the that's the problem, is that doing standing up against oppression isn't signing a petition, it isn't reading the newspaper and being outraged and talking to your friends. It's going and doing something about it and going and making your voice actually heard. And I guess, you know, if you're capable of long periods of meditation and you engage in prayer then probably you're less afraid of being locked in a little room for 12 hours or whatever. I think there are young people that I've spoken to who've been recently arrested who found the experience quite challenging because after a certain number of hours, they really, really wanted to get out and they couldn't. And I, it's at that time when I thought, thank God I went and did Vipassana and sat still for 10 days in silence because this is actually quite simple for me. And I would imagine that people of faith have a similarly simpler experience of being confined in that way if you don't have a practice to move into then you're you, in a much worse position and you don't have your mobile phone with you <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> unless you smuggle it in <laughs> some people have apparently some people have smuggled their phone in and done they've written TripAdvisor <laughs> from the cell never doubt that a small group of people can change the world indeed. So far, we've been talking about non-violence, but really mostly in a pragmatic way, in that it is the thing that seems to be most effective for the sort of political actions. But actually, when I first joined Extinction Rebellion, because I'm, I'm going to come out, I'm a Buddhist... <laughs> 
My name is Jessica. We're all friends and here. I, <laughs> I'm a Buddhist. Um, the non-violence was itself a big attraction to me. Mm. Uh, the thought of being part of a mass movement uh, that used not a non-violent way forward seemed to me very clean somehow, but also the fact that it plugs it into um, those movements that have come before us, Martin Luther King, Gandhi. Mm. Uh, Has I, that history. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Dave? Well, it's interesting that you say that because, um, well, I'm going to come out and say I'm, I'm an atheist, um, you know, born and bred, and it's got just as much appeal for me, actually. It's, that's, again, I mentioned earlier, that's one of the things that's, um, that drew me to the movement as well. I think that's something that you find once you're actually kind of involved in involved in meetings and planning actions and things is that Extinction Rebellion really is a kind of coalition of different faiths or people with no faith, different politics. There are people, I've met people who are even, I would say, slightly right wing in some of their views, but still, um, you know, completely behind what we're trying to achieve. And I think that's a really important point that whether it's in uh, religion or in politics, it really is a broad church. No, absolutely. We um, we welcome anyone who wants uh, the government to react to the environmental crisis. It really doesn't matter what the rest of their opinions are. As long as they're non-violent. As, <laughs> exactly, as long as they're non-violent. And I think another thing that we need to bear in mind is that non-violence doesn't just affect actions. It also is, within the Extinction Rebellion, a way that we try and relate to each other. Um, and it's built into many different aspects of the movement. And actually, our third interviewee, who is Skeena Rathor, who's a local politician and is on the political strategy team for XR, is going to look at these other wider aspects of nonviolence. I suppose we could look at it through that lens. If we look at Extinction Rebellion internally and our, our principles for nonviolence in, internally, we're developing them all the time. It's important to say that. This is an emergent space. And we're discovering together what nonviolence means within a movement, which is beautiful, because we have a genuine wish to do that. I think where we are at currently in our exploration is that we are very clear about our language being of not of blame or shame. You know, it's about, again, being thinking about uh, how we can be most impeccable with our language. Uh, sometimes it's called clean language. Within our systems, sorry, within our structure and our systems, we're a decentralised network, which is, again, that the self-autonomy and yet the intimacy that that fosters sits in, in you know, in the, in the centre of a non-violent ethos. One of the things that I've noticed and really value very strongly about Extinction Rebellion is the non-calling uh, out policy, which, uh, which to me does seem to mm -hmm. fit in with what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Would you mind just explaining what that is for us? This is interesting because we don't uh, discuss what no calling out means. But no calling out means that you don't interrupt people first of all when they're speaking and you also aren't it's not yours to call out 
behavior that uh, in a way that is a- accusatory at the human level at the individual level i would say it's about rebels checking in with self empathy first you know it's hard it's very difficult to have empathy for another when internally you are feeling uh anxious scared you know your emotions are are running high angry they rage all of those emotions that that we we carry and that then that's even harder when that you there there is no acknowledgement of that within yourself when you are pushing 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 away from those feelings and there's there's two things there's acknowledging that you have those feelings and it's accepting your worth in those feelings and when one can hold that internally hold that rage with compassion and and self empathy then you know you you're you're able to you have this energy that's available to you then to 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 be an empathic presence for others and for any action that's taking place mm-hmm. so at the individual level i would say it's about us looking in and holding ourselves with infinite kindness for ourselves never doubt that a small group of people can change the world indeed it is the only thing that Listening to Skeena talk there really actually took me back to some of my first uh, meetings with um, XR um, because I actually remember being quite frustrated with some um, implications of this very um, pervasive non-violent culture because sometimes in the meetings you can feel things are moving a bit slowly, everyone's being very careful about everyone else's feelings and uh, my instinct is quite often just to get to the point and be direct. But actually, now that I'm more steeped in the culture of XR, I can see that when you have these people coming from these different religious or political perspectives all having to come together and work together, you actually need that culture um, to enable you to actually move forward together and come to some kind of consensus. Yeah, I think this isn't directly about nonviolence, but uh, we also make sure when we have meetings and things that we check in and everybody says what kind of day and what kind of week. And at the beginning, again, that used to make me feel a little bit frustrated uh, because sometimes, you know, you could talk quite a long time about somebody's period pains or something and uh, and I would coming from and you know hierarchical kind of background I would think can't we just get on with it but actually it means that you get to know your colleagues as people a little bit better and also if they are a bit grumpy about stuff you think oh well they're having that terrible week uh, and you cut them a bit of slack instead of thinking that it's something that you've offended them or is uh, is something personal so uh, in a way I guess that is a more peaceful sort of interaction as well and it actually makes me think um, it's something that a lot of businesses could learn from as well or you know actually now I think um, you know, in many workplaces that I've, you know, worked in professionally, 
we could have done with knowing that um, this person was having a bad week or that person was grumpy about this and it would have you know saved a lot of trouble in the long term rather than just having this kind of business 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 approach to everything which seems to be more efficient but actually um yeah because i think where when when it turns into conflict even if it's unspoken conflict it takes quite a lot of energy and bandwidth and processing time to kind of um to then get along with those people so um actually yes if it's right there up front even though it does mean that we have to kind of unlearn some things and be a little bit more patient with each other i think in the coming years we're going to have to reprogram almost every element of our society and absolutely key to that is going to be the way that we relate to each other as people as a country well as a world we want to go forward with non-violence if possible when we meet all these challenges that seems to be a good place to to end this episode our first episode together yeah thank you for thank you for having me <laughs> <laughs> It's been an interesting experience being on this side of the microphone rather than criticising from (laughs) the other side. (laughs) And episode three on its way. That's going to be about citizens' assemblies. Mm, And and citizens' assemblies, as I understand it, and obviously there'll be a lot more detail about this uh, in the next episode, but they're basically a kind of political, uh, sorry, a democratic process that's put into place to oversee kind of huge changes and decisions. And the next episode will definitely be out before the Spring Rebellion, which, to remind everybody, it begins on the 15th of April. 15th of April. Book it (laughs) off. We have run out of excuses and we are running out of time. time.